Two pastors and Tom walk into a bar, but this is no joke. It's the start of a conversation between three friends about culture, God, beer, and more. So pull up a chair, order a pint, and let's get started. Just over two weeks ago, the world watched a police officer murder George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. While not the first instance of extreme police brutality, and sadly, probably not the last, this particular instance stood out from all the rest due to the egregiousness of the act, the time it took to play out, and the casual indifference of the police officers involved. In the days that followed, protests and riots broke out across Minneapolis, then the United States, and finally across the world. For those of you listening today who think that racism and the injustice that the injustice that comes with it isn't as bad as it is being made out to be, I implore you to listen to this episode. And I mean really listen. For some of you, this is a wake-up call. While you are late to the party, and trust me, we all showed up late, at least you are here now and our ask is the same. Really listen to what we have to say tonight. And for the many millions who have been screaming at the top of their lungs for the rest of us to open our eyes to the horrific injustice that is happening every day all around us, well, we say keep screaming, keep protesting, and keep fighting for change. This is Pine Class Preachers. That was the most serious introduction we have ever done on this show. I, it, I, don't, I don't even know, I don't even know what to do. There was no sarcasm, no snarkiness, yeah. no, no. no veiled pop culture no. references. I feel like you were just kind of landing on the side of the protesters and the demonstrations, and so you probably just think looting and destroying property is okay, don't you, Tom? Why do you hate oh, Target yeah. so much, I Tom? Mean, yep, yep. We didn't burn enough. I mean... <laughs> Aren't you from Minneapolis? I live in Minneapolis. Don't you live in downtown Minneapolis, right in the heart of where everything was? I do not, which was kind of the funny thing. There was a bunch of people who uh, texted me and uh, and very kindly texted to say, hi, are you guys safe? And Including me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a relevant question and things like that. But the funny thing is, is most of those texts I fielded from my deck while sim- sipping a gin and tonic, you know, while it is close, we had a Walmart that was on fire about a mile and a half from our house. Uh, the majority of all the things that were happening were a good three to four miles away, which, you know. And to be fair, like, that Walmart fire, like that was going to happen anyways. That really didn't have anything to do. <laughs> that's with, kind of a Saturday right? night thing like, anyway. That's <laughs> what Walmarts do. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, it, it was just very weird to be watching the news um, and seeing like, oh, I, I went down that street two weeks ago and oh, I, may, I know that store and I've been to there and things like that. And then realizing that you know, that's what everybody else is seeing across the world. It's in yeah. my city, but like very much removed uh, for a lot of reasons. So, yeah. You know, it's yeah. funny. I had people calling me as well being like, hey, are you guys okay? And in my head, I was thinking, I don't think anything drastic has happened in Chattanooga recently, but we, we can't so like check the cocktail news, like, that far. Am, am I okay? Right. Okay, I am. Wait a second. Wait, how did I get to Minneapolis? What? what? And I didn't um, even call Tom. <laughs> ah. All right, gents, you guys have waited long enough. 
you want to know what I'm drinking tonight. And mostly I'm worried about it melting away. Gentlemen, I've got Bailey's <laughs> strawberry daiquiri. What? Uh, fresh, fresh from my freezer. So, friends, if you're not familiar, these are the uh, prepackaged daiquiris that, uh, I don't know, people take to country festivals, I think. Uh, and Throw them in a cooler out on your boat. Yeah, you got a cooler out on your boat. It's like the adult Capri Sun. Uh, <laughs> and I found one in my freezer today, and I was like, dude, this is happening for PGP. Oh, my so, gosh. Uh, is that, Meli- is that Melissa's? Where, where, how did that end up in your freezer in the first place? So here's the story is, uh, and they, many of them listen to the podcast, but whatever. I believe my sister-in-law really likes them genuinely. And she like was, I don't know, going on a fast or like just diet or whatever. And so she wanted to get rid of them. So she gave them to my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law's like, I'm not drinking this. I gave it to Melissa. And then it sat in my freezer for about five months. Nice. And then I found it tonight. So, so can you, you take a big, because, a big sip for us and tell us what it's like? Cause I've, I've never had not only a real daiquiri, but not a prepackaged daiquiri either. You guys, I'm on the beach right now. There are no problems in the world. No murder hornets. It basically, honestly, it tastes like, it's like a slushy, like a, you know, an icy uh, or a Slurpee is the word I'm looking for with like vodka in it. That's like all it tastes like. Like a strawberry. It tastes, like, it tastes like spring break. Like it does. So like a frozen white claw? No, a white claw is like hard seltzer. Oh, like this is yeah. like a this is like a Slurpee with vodka in it. Oh. Yeah. All right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, thank heaven for 7 Eleven. No, Gabe, I really honestly thought that that could have been nearly 10 to 12 years old because I clearly remember a time when my wife and your wife got together for girls night or whatever, bought a bunch of those and I had those in my freezer forever. So I thought maybe that was, you know, you were just fine. It could have been from when I lived next door to you 10, literally a decade ago. Yeah, man. That's a, that, that, that was with you in a lot of moves then Gabe that has traveled (laughs) the country with you. Really worth it to bring it here tonight though. Dude, hey, um, can we, speaking of, like, the obsolescence of prepackaged daiquiris, uh, apparently, I would like to challenge our listeners that we will, we've promised prizes before, but never actually delivered, and, and so let me once again, <laughs> yes, let me once again put out false hope for all those who are listening. If someone can find some Zima and take a picture of having purchased a Zima, there will be a prize waiting for your... For you oh, in your mailbox. That's a good shout, man. You know what? I, I try. I try. It's yeah. really good. I really hope someone follows through on this. That would be so nice. Um, Tom, what are you drinking, Bubba? Well, it's going to take some time here. So uh, get excited, Tyler. Here we go. Um, I have a new drink. It's delicious. It's bourbon-based. And so uh, I'm going to tell you how to make it because I like cocktails that I can make at home that – that tastes really good that I don't have to have 17 different ingredients for. This is stuff that you probably have at home or can get very cheaply. Okay. So this one only has 15 ingredients. I was going to say, you're like simple yeah. recipes are always ridiculous. Yes. It's like four, four things, four things. Okay. First thing, you're gonna do, first thing you're going to do is you're going to make simple syrup. Okay. Already lost me. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> but the water that you're going to use you will have put, uh, you will have steeped the water with four black tea bags, okay? And so you're going to make tea, sim- tea infused simple syrup, all right? 
like you're gonna Earl put... Grey. We talking no, no, no. bergamot. No, uh, we're talking chrysanthemum. You can kind of choose, but I would suggest a simple black tea. Okay. okay. All right. Now, make your simple syrup. You put half a shot glass of that into into your mixer. Two shots of bourbon, half shot of lemon juice, and then take some bitters and just two dashes. Throw it in there. Shake that up half half of it into a cup, and then pour ginger beer over the top. It's delicious. It's great. It, I feel like it would be great on a hot day. It'd be good curling up next to the fire in the winter. Your choice. Here's the thing, listeners. Uh, you got to go out and find that Zima. But also, I do not have a name for this drink. There's I say no you call it, for it the the khaki shorts and polo shirt. <laughs> no, yeah. it's not that. Yep. Pleated, way, pleated khakis. That's no, what you should call it. The pleated khaki. Too, it's <laughs> <laughs> the cargo shorts it's, and pleats. It's the pleats. It's the pleats and the pants. It's the pleats, man. <laughs> it's the most too. unflattering trend in all of fashion history. The pleated front. Mm. I miss man. it. I miss it. It's uh, way so too hipster for that. It's good delicious. listener. It's delicious. If you got a name for it, good listener, we would love to hear it from you. Please send in your texts, uh, either of a picture of a Zima <laughs> that you've purchased or a name for Tom's drink uh, to 612-208-6258. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Our final drink of the evening comes from Yeshua Woodrow in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yes, and and I don't have a 10-year-old frozen daiquiri in a pouch, nor do I have an unnamed cocktail. Uh, but what I do have is an ode to Gabe, because I believe it was maybe last recording or two episodes ago, uh, he was drinking some rum, specifically mm-hmm. the spiced rum, the Kraken. And, you know, I was like, okay, I'll pick some of that up. And it is so delightful. And so tonight, an homage to one Gabe Casper in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Nothing but uh, a nice, neat Kraken to get us going. So, cheers! Cheers. I lift my daiquiri to you. And to give credit where it's due, Tom originally introduced me to the Kraken. So, it's a full circle thing here, uh, actually. Nothing like the circle of rum and circle of three man friends and some Kraken. Yep. We're there, people. We did it. We did did it. it. We finally come full circle four years later. All right, friends. We're going to talk about a heavy topic today. No, no, no. Before we do that, before we do that, Tom's got something to share with us. Yeah, we we had we had uh, one one of our just well, my favorite listener, our 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 biggest fan, uh, Janet. All of our uh, favorite listeners. All of our favorite. Yes, Janet, the best listener. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wrote in and. didn't just poop on Josh's parade. She crushed him. Uh, as you may have heard in previous episodes. No, this was a specific B side. We put out a, a very special B side about this. I know, but we've talked about it in multiple episodes. Yeah, this has shown up in many episodes. Your disdain for something that you've never really even tried. You've never untrue. Factually untrue. No, you've never had Midwestern hot dish. You've never had it. You maybe had it somewhere down south or over in California, which doesn't count. So you haven't had it, but you are constantly begging on it. And so 
Janet put you in your place. Would you like to talk about the the text that she sent us? No. Because you know when you've when you've done something just so egregious and then you get caught and you just wallow in shame and self-pity for weeks on end. That's what happened when when we received a text message from the number one fan of the pod, Janet O'Neill, calling me out on the fact that I did not commingle law and gospel. I did not commingle the persons of the Trinity. I commingled the casserole and the hot dish. Well, you did, and I like I wasn't even really aware of that point. The hot dish yeah. is the thing that you eat. The casserole dish is the thing. It's pretty interchangeable, but this is the thing that she brought up. For those of us who grew up in the Midwest, a hot dish or a casserole, whatever you call gross. it, it's amazing. But it is usually some sort of uh, pasta or maybe even potato. It's some kind of meat. There's some vegetables. There's usually a cream of something thrown in. There's some cheese sprinkled on top. And any variety of those things and it's delicious okay every single and so time josh is like oh it's terrible it's terrible terrible never really having had it um yep. but but mom pointed out she's like well first of all pretty much you know a lot of these chinese dishes that that you have is pretty much the same it's a noodle with a meat thrown on top with some vegetables and you mix it all up and you put a sauce on it and so that's no. very similar fundamental like a spanish oh, a fundamentally spanish different no same same thing. Okay. So, first of all, first of all, okay. And this is also, ah, this is Janet. I'm so sorry, but we are going to, we are going to do battle all right like, from here. I know lose. I'm going to lose. And you know what? Sometimes you got to fight a losing battle anyway, just to save face. Okay. First of all, this is the same issue I have with a crock pot. All right. Because if I make a roast or a stew or a curry in my Dutch oven, then what does that entail? <laughs> Wait, yes. The Dutch oven is when you fart in the blanket and you pull it over your wife's head. I Until, that un way. okay, that is also true. That's the colloquial <laughs> version of a Dutch oven. But the real Dutch oven is you brown the meat and you saute the vegetables and then you add the liquid and reduce it down into whatever delicious dish you want to eat, right? The crock pot is like the vomit okay, of ingredients into one vessel and then put it on low and let it get mushy for 18 hours, all right? That is the difference between Chinese food, paella, and a hot dish. With Chinese food, you, you have a burning dish. hot, you have a burning hot wok, okay? And you toss in the veggies, you toss in the meat, you toss in the noodles, and you're coating them in a delicious sauce all the while sauteing them over a freaking propane burner, okay? A paella, same thing. You've got a very hot pan, which you're caramelizing those onions and that garlic, and then you're crisping up the rice before adding the liquid and letting it steam to perfection. A hot dish is you just put crap in a casserole dish, stick it in the oven, and cross your fingers that it comes out some other color other than gray. It I'm will sorry, not come Janet. Out another color other than gray. And Janet, that's just fine. I'm so sorry. You are so wrong, Josh. Let's move I'm on. I'm so sorry, Janet. Let's move on. We have, um, w this is probably uh, the fun part of the show. And it's we're going to take a dive into the more serious this time because, as my, as my intro talked about, uh, we have uh, some significant things happening in our, in our society and our culture right now. Um, that has come, uh, has, as you will hear later, 
has been a thing for a while now, but it's been thrust into our consciousness here uh, in the last two weeks in a, in a big way. And so we want to get into that. We're going to uh, we're going to let Josh talk a lot today because uh, Josh is someone who is very passionate about uh, about speaking about racism and and uh, social injustice. And he has become somewhat of an expert on it, although he, he will be the first one to tell you he is still a white guy uh, who uh, is still speaking from that place. But he has done he has done a lot of work on that. And so we're going to be talking with him about not only his studies of it, his uh, involvement in the in the city of Chattanooga and what he uh, some of the work that he's doing and what he can bring to us. And so we're going to go to break and then we're going to jump into this uh, very uh, very serious and very uh, significant topic. Talk to you soon. I'm sorry, Janet. I'm so, so sorry. Let's not dunk on him again. I'm not. are back from break. Great to be with you all. Um, I have since moved on from my strawberry daiquiri to a nice red wine straight out of a box. Um, but um, tonight we are having a serious conversation, uh, but I'm going to start with with a question and maybe this is a concern that some people have uh, where people would, would say, you know, hey, we're, we're talking about racial issues and, and whatever else and like this, this conversation around what we call social justice in our world. Uh, I think sometimes people are like, social justice like that's not biblical that doesn't seem right like that's just for those crazy leftists but uh but really what what is like the origins of social justice like where does this this even come from as as we think about that to kind of frame part of our conversation tonight now I'll, I'll throw that at you josh yeah i'm actually really glad you you framed it that way because you know it, we we all know it like this conversation in in our world today has become so hyper partisan that we've sort of forgotten the roots at least from the church's perspective and theologically like the roots of where this concept around justice and social justice and care for the well-being of the community like comes from right and you know this is something i've preached on many times at bridge city it, and and i know gabe you preached on a whole series of this and so I was prepping for, for a sermon this Sunday, as a matter of fact. And so I picked up uh, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, and I was flipping through to see, hey, maybe there's some little nuggets that I've underlined before. And he just does a really good job, uh, I think, highlighting the causes and, and the roots of not just like poverty, which tends to lead into this conversation then about social justice, but, but issues of justice as well. And the first one is incredibly poignant to to where we find ourselves today, particularly in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And so basically, uh, Keller kind of, you know, uh, reduces all of scripture um, in all of its wisdom and highlights these primary, these three primary causes for, for poverty, for the need for justice, social justice in the world, okay? The first is this. Simply put, oppression, but more specifically, Oppression, which includes a judicial system weighted in the favor of the powerful. All right. Two, 
the primary cause for poverty or the need for social justice is a result of loans with excessive interest. So just read payday lenders or predatory lending, okay? Mm -hmm. And finally, three, unjustly low wages. And so if we look at this, right, these come from uh, Leviticus, they come from Exodus, they come from Jeremiah, and they come from James, as well as many of the other prophets and writers in the New Testament. And so this so isn't... Quick, all three of those concepts come from the scriptures, right? They're yes. The, the, they're just the root causes straight of out the Bible. slash injustice, we have... Can you hit those again just super fast? Yes. Uh, oppression, particularly one which includes a judicial system that's weighted in favor of the powerful. So power there, okay. the ability to act or affect change. So those who actually have the ability to, to act in a meaningful way, all right? Mm -hmm. Loans with excessive interest or predatory lending and unjustly low wages. So yeah. an unlivable wage. And perhaps you've heard of those things. I mean, let's just look at the, the first one, right? We're looking at... A, a, a judicial system which does favor and give more weight to the voice, the presence, and the actions of law enforcement than it does to individual citizens. And that's a historical thing, which I'll get into in a second. Two, predatory lending. Like, go to any impoverished community, which is predominantly going to be made up of poor people of color, and you will find more payday and title lending uh, services than even fast food restaurants or liquor stores or grocery stores for that matter. And three, how many of our cities in the last two years have been crying for the fight for 15, right? Just to get to a livable wage for those who are in what we now are considering, right? Like necessary or fundamental, uh, you know, or what do we call them now? The jobs like oh, essential? essential workers, right? <clears throat> Like, oh, Which, what? They don't have enough. Yeah, I know. I was like, can't you we see there is a, a dude who like works for TCBY, which somehow is deemed essential during all Wait, this. There's a TCBY still in existence? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he like had to dress up as an ice cream cone and he took a picture of himself. He's like, How the heck am I an essential worker? <laughs> um, very fair. Anyway. Okay, okay. Yeah, but, very uh, fair. So, like, I would challenge anyone listening. And, and anyone who wants to say that social justice is a partisan issue or it's only for those leftist-leaning liberals, right, to look throughout the pages of Scripture from the very beginning of, of God leading his people out of slavery, mind you, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, look at any one of the prophets, minor or major, look at the people that Jesus chooses to highlight relationships with and rarely condemns on any sort of systematic level. And you will be like just shocked that it tends to be a focus on what we would say are social justice issues or the well-being of the community, the well-being of where we find ourselves as Christians in the world. And uh, as a matter of fact, like he, he at one other point in the book talks about, you know, God created everything uh, to be in shalom or to be in peace and harmony and unity. And the fabric, sin has caused the fabric of shalom to be torn apart and, and ripped in places. And so to 
act justly or to um, be about justice for your neighbors and for the broader community is simply to be sewing back the ripped parts of the fabric of God's shalom. So this is a, a fundamental aspect of our Christian discipleship, and it's also not anything new especially as American Christians, all right? And so let me just lay out a little bit of history that will lead us to like where we're at today because I don't know about you guys, but on my social media feeds and in conversations I've had, there are a lot of Americans, there are a lot of Christian Americans who are like, whoa, where the heck is this coming from? Like, why is everyone all of a sudden up in arms? Why are these demonstrators so angry why are black americans so fed up you know what i mean so like i don't know have you guys experienced that in, in ann arbor i mean obviously tom in minneapolis but like to me that seems to be a, a sort of a common refrain right now yeah and i think it's like um how do i put it i and, and i know we're going to get into this a little later with like the all lives matter black lives matter etc uh, conversation we'll get there in a minute here but but i think that is like the sentiment i've discovered uh, to a certain degree um i mean to be honest ann arbor's kind of a as the kids say woke city so there's not a ton of that but it's like this it's it's like this it's like they don't get the idea of like i know a black person who's doing great and they're successful and they've not experienced any of these things that people are talking about and they're my friend so I don't see what the problem is. It's like one bad apple, one bad thing. I don't understand why everyone's so upset. It's just one bad instance, right? So it's like, there's like a lack of seeing sort of the connection of things, right? Like it's like, well, that's just one instance of a bad cop. That's just one instance of a bad person as opposed to like seeing sort of the, the connection of things. So that's more the, the, the things I guess I've seen people respond with. Right. So let me try to be as brief as possible, but also as clear as possible. Uh, when I say that when, when, when the, when the demonstrations and the riots arose at the death of George, George Floyd, even the death of George Floyd itself, it was not surprising to me, not because of the, the, the atrocious nature of the crime that was committed or the, the vehement response by, by the public, particularly uh, black Americans and, and other people of color, but it was because this isn't anything new. Like it's not an anomaly. It's not something that just popped up out of nowhere, but this type of interaction between law enforcement and black lives or, or black human beings in America has, has been built and woven into the very fabric of our country. All right. So you can go all the way back to Portugal in 1600, like 30, uh, 25, something like that, where the, the king of Portugal was really upset that Arab, uh, merchants were able to get to the African continent and cut off trade routes for the Portuguese. So the Portuguese, uh, king at the time, uh, wanted to eliminate that economic threat. And so therefore started, uh, basically what is now known as the slave trade. So he went down into North Africa, started enslaving Africans uh, and taking over uh, these these trade routes that th these Arab merchants thought they had a hold on. And so then from there, we see over the course of uh, now almost 400 years, 
not just um, an economic impetus for for slavery and the dehumanization of of non-European individuals, um, but it's also a biological thing. Like you can look up uh, this dude Linnaeus. He was a I believe a Swiss um, biologist who categorized. Um, all, first of all, he's the first one that came up with categorizations based on race, um, and deemed them by color specifically, but then also categorized the behavioral characteristics of whites, blacks, yellows, and reds, all right? So using those color categories essentially said that whites or, or people of European descent, like we're intelligent, we're smart, we're hardworking, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, like on the bottom rung of that ladder were Negroids or were black individuals of African descent who he categorized biologically as being lazy and, um, you know, uh, violent and, and so many other things that just like they were simply made up, all right? So you've got economic history, you've got biological history, uh, you've also got policy history. Um, if you look to the very founding of our country, and this even transcends uh, the race construct, if you look into our, our founding documents and the, and the behaviors of the founding fathers themselves, our entire constitution and bill of rights, and this is straight up uh, credit to Mark Charles, he's an indigenous uh, you know, uh, person who has done extensive research on this, if you really read and pastor for and pastor, yes, the, pastor the and theologian, church, like in an Orthodox church, yeah, correct, yeah. correct, yeah. absolutely, um, and you can find him on YouTube. I would seriously look him up. Uh, mm -hmm. He he quotes and cites the doctrine of discovery, which was a papal bull in uh, six no fifteen. It was right before the Reformation, um, late 1490, I think it was before Columbus even. That basically it was the Catholic Church saying, hey. Anywhere you want to go that doesn't already have Christians who are inhabiting the space, basically it's God-given right and, and title to that land to take and to suppress and then to convert by force. So that was the original impetus. For, for the record, we're yes. all for conversion. We're not for conversion by force. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Evangelism is a fundamental aspect of discipleship and jesus yep. tells us to go and baptize but not at the barrel of a, at the end of a barrel of a gun right right that's never in there no nope. yep. not in the bible not even once nope um and so this doctrine of discovery is really what what founded our country you had a lot of european colonial uh, colonists who were sailing westward uh with basically the permission of the church to to take land from indigenous peoples uh by any means necessary and so this this mashup of the doctrine of discovery um and this burgeoning slave trade that was rooted entirely in economics uh really kind of gave the the founding fathers the foundation to stand on where the only people who benefited from the original constitution uh, were white land-owning males. So, ladies, you were out. Any non-whites, you were out. Any non-landowners, you were out. So from the very beginning of our country, we have an entire system that, that is intentionally constructed uh, around, one, this, this race construct, right, of, like, white versus non-white. Then, over... Um, racial capitalism, essentially like who owns property or who can amass wealth. And then two, um, those people who then, who have laid claim to the land legally or illegally. And he has this great illustration in one of his videos where he says, um, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, it's like a lot of settlers who came to America, like, you know, you got people who weren't slave owners necessarily, but you know, who came to the upper Midwest, no, no offense, boys. 
you know, and are like, oh, but, you know, we were here and, and like we just claimed this land. And he's like, oh, yeah. He goes, you discovered it from the people who are already living there. So feel free to leave your cell phones, your wallets and your purses on your chairs and I'll go ahead and discover them for you later and then claim them yeah, as yeah. my own. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, as a funny yeah, aside, yeah. I was actually, Gabe, you were there with me uh, at Camp Arcadia and I was lecturing yeah. one of these years talking about this very thing. And someone came up to me afterwards and was like, like, well, my, you know, my family, they were just dairy farmers that came to, you know, Wisconsin or Michigan or whatever. Like, you know, like we didn't do anything. And I was like, they're like, we weren't, we didn't own slaves, our people. I was like, yeah, but what about like the indigenous folks who lived on the land? And they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? Just let them live there and kill Buffalo. And it was like, yeah, that, that, that was like a legit option. Okay. So fast forward through the constitution. All right. Even through the end of the slave trade. One way that I like to describe the, the race construct is that it's always shape-shifting, okay? It's always changing form to try to keep whiteness um, or, or white power, not in the sense of, like, clan hoods, okay, or Confederate right, flags right. or, like, swastikas, but the, the hierarchical, hierarchical prominence and privilege of, of white individuals or white systems over those of black, Asian, Indian, indigenous, you know, Latinx, whatever descent, right, is, is always shape-shifting so that, so that we as white individuals want to believe that we've progressed, that racism is, racism is no longer something that negatively or adversely affects black people or people of color and, and doesn't positively privilege us as white folks, right? So let me, if I, you don't mind, let me Go like, let's, let's just do some clarifying here, okay? So like... You did kind of very early history, but I think there's a few key concepts we want to define. And then I think we want to move in terms of uh, some more somewhat recent history, because yeah. I do think many people are going to be like, yeah, slavery was bad. We right. all agree on that. Okay. Bad. Right. I think many people, well, actually probably not to be honest. I think probably the most under talked about thing is the frankly genocide of the indigenous people of North America. hundred percent. Uh, but that, that's not the conversation tonight. That maybe will be one later, but, uh, but anyway, but most people will be like, yes, slavery, bad, terrible, but bro, it's, you know, that was 1865 done right. and dusted, like we're against that. Right. So, so let, let's move forward. And then, so I think we want to, so let's move forward and say, all right, well, how, how is either the ripple effects of that still manifest itself today and, or what, you know, what hasn't changed enough that we would still say, uh, there's systemic race issues here. And then I also, Josh, if you can clarify, man, you, you say uh, racial construct or race as a construct. Yes. What do you mean by that? What, what does that mean? Okay, so race and racism did not exist prior to the 1600s. Freaking Portuguese, man. Oh, shoot, there I go. Right, right. There you go. Get off those Portuguese. Okay, so like, right. (laughs) Oh man, he is one great footballer. I will say that. Very good looking too, and incredibly handsome. Um, right. And so the term race itself was invented in the mid to late 1600s by this dude you were mentioning before. Uh, not Linnaeus, by um, basically the biographer of the King of Portugal. Okay, invented this term race. All right. Okay, Tom doesn't care about this. Go yes, on. Tom doesn't care Keep about moving. it. All right. So we see throughout history you have ethnicities, right? So Mongolian, Chinese, Nigerian, German, 
Aboriginal, right? These are ethnic identities, okay? And there are differences between ethnicities. But those things were never, there was never a system of power and control and prejudice that leveraged ethnic differences to mm. distinctly elevate and empower one group over all others. And that's where this race construct comes race construct play. is and so that's why i mentioned it's a historical thing it's an economic thing it's a biological thing it's a narrative driven thing it's a sociological thing and it's a political thing because okay, it's okay. all of those things that continue to prop up a made a made a made up and make believe system yeah yeah okay? okay so like a lot of people want to say like oh racism it's just personal prejudice like i hate fill in the blank right mm -hmm. but a redefinition as it turns out what Portuguese, I said yes. Portuguese. Yes. I don't really, for the record, okay. All right. right, and so like a healthy redefinition of, of racism is is prejudice plus power. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. interpersonal prejudice plus then the power to uh, to make policy, to litigate, to assert dominance over another group of people. All right, yeah. so it's an individual thing, but it's also a broader systemic thing. Okay, so fast forward, right. After the yeah. Civil War, great. Slavery is over. Oh, Reconstruction. Guess what? The South and the North were still exploiting um, black bodies in a uh, basically what was called a, a convict lease system. Do your research on that. Basically, it was slavery without enslavement. It was like, oh, you're working here, but we're just not going to pay you. And if you decide not to work, we'll put you in prison. Then that shape shifted into Jim Crow, which was you know, white drinking fountains, black drinking fountains, right? Then you get MLK and, oh, the savior of racism. That's when we solved it, Josh. Right? That's when we solved it. Moving on from there, look at uh, lending, look at housing, look at the amassment of wealth, um, look at uh, incarceration rates. All of those things disproportionately affect black people primarily and then people of color subsequently, okay? So quick um, to, like, do a little bit of backpedaling. So, like... Let's just, okay, so we go abolition, 1865, whatever, great. We move into this, like, uh, you're free, but if you leave, you're going to be arrested. Uh, that sort of shifts, and then you end up into Jim Crow, segregation, where separate but equal is never actually equal, right? and uh, Black people are treated as inferior. That goes on until MLK shows up in the 1960s. So that's the other thing I think people always need to realize is, like, Think of all of this is happening until the 1960s. Like this yep. is not like that's not that long ago. No, and okay, that's so and that's why I like to explain to people, right? You have 300 years of like basically like just this thing building up upon itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A decade from 1950 to 1960 or 1960 is is not going to wipe it out or erase it, right? right? And once once MLK brings it to the forefront, it just simply shape shifts again, which now we see in disproportionate rates of of um people of color not able to get conventional loans uh they're still redlining in housing okay and, and that's can we touch on redlining for a second here yeah because i do think that's huge like and i, I think that's one of the more underreported things right like just as far as i don't know a white dude who grew up in this country i did not learn about redlining until i don't know like three years ago like it was not that I mean, it was more than that but like five years ago like, it was not that long ago uh and so and i just watched a video on code from code switch on redlining oh yeah that's uh, a great one it's really good um so why don't you tell us about that josh uh well yeah because well, so gabe watched like, it 
Well, yeah, but I would rather you talk about redlining because I like I watched it once, but I don't feel like I know enough. Like, so what is redlining? Because I do think like that's such a huge thing. Because like, I, well, maybe I'll do like a dummy summary of it. And yeah, you correct go me, for Josh, it. Okay, go for so it. like, redlining would be like it's FDR, which is crazy, which super bums me out because I I really liked FDR, but drives me nuts that he did this. Uh, you know, so during the Great Depression, they're trying to like rejuvenate the housing market. And so like, that's when they're like the 30 year mortgage becomes a thing and exists and whatever else. Uh, but in, in cities, in order to like, uh, and in order to like qualify, they, they, they said like, these are different zones where depending on who you are, you are approved for a loan within this zone. Mm-hmm. And so like blue zones were like for businessmen who are doing really great green zones. I don't know if that's the right color, but we're like for middle-class families, white collar jobs, upper middle-class families, that sort of thing. Uh, like what's another color? Yellow zones were like blue collar, lower class, uh, predominantly white, lower class families. And then red zones were like African-American families for the most part. Right. And it was like, you could like, you couldn't get a loan in the blue zone if you were black dude. And so like, right. They had to live in poor infrastructures. And then on top of that, you have it where it's like the way our school system funds itself is based on the tax dollars within that zone. Mm-hmm. So you set up a poor zone of housing, you're always going to have poor education right? because you don't have the same amount of resources coming into that zone. Precisely. And so that that's where I think redlining is just like so horrific. Yeah. And just to bring it to the, to the immediate, Two years ago, a report went out in the Chattanooga area and our largest bank, okay, so the bank that gave out the largest amount of, of home mortgage loans in, in a one-year period gave out one, a single conventional mortgage to a black family. Mm-hmm. One. How does a bank, the largest lender in a part of the South where we have a very significant black population... Mm-hmm. give out one conventional loan, right? So like this isn't stuff that just like disappeared. You know what I mean? Right. And like just to kind of add a little bit more texture and pepper in some of this stuff, like, you know, especially to bring and, – and actually maybe this will bring it back into George Floyd a little bit quicker for Tom's sake is like uh, it was political and lobbying – oh, so good. Go ahead, Tom. My only point in wanting to move this as long is that we have a lot to get to. And I don't care if this episode runs two hours. I just want our listeners to understand that like – like in order to have this conversation, we have to like get into some of this, but we can't get into everything. everything. Right. Yeah, no. Right. And it, and it's extremely complex. Like, like I said, I've literally dedicated the last six years to trying to self-educate myself. And like, I'm still coming across things where I'm like, what the heck? How, like, how is that even possible? Like so information. Just, is brand one, new. one of the questions that I have is because when, when you put this all, all in context and you talk about, um, some of the horrific things that happened in, in slavery, a, as we think about it, you know, in, in our history books and, uh, you know, bringing people over here and, and, and all of that to then uh, to the lynchings and things that happened in, in the early to mid 1900s and things like that to where we are. And let, let's just back up two weeks before George Floyd, you know, and things like that, um, understanding that there's still police brutality and, and all those things. I'll, I'll ask the dumb question. Are we, are we at least in a better place, or have we just, um, have we just replaced 
really sh shockingly awful things with more insidious behind the scenes things. Yeah. So to put it in in theological terms, uh, our sin is not right before our eyes. Like we're not the Israelites who have been taken into captivity and see our lives laying in destruction and waste, calling out to God saying, oh, we need to turn and repent. Like mm -hmm. we are in a very comfortable position as Americans in 2020. Like we're, we, I mean, up until the pandemic, we were economically not just stable, but thriving. Uh, we were in a mindset of like, yeah, we've progressed past all of these things. We had Barack Obama as, as a first black president. Like a lot of people were kind of like, you know, trumpeting progress, right? But our sin was sort of like insidious. Like you said, it was, it was still underlying. It was still there. And if you, and if you don't have a discerning eye to look at the systems, to look at the policies, to look at the procedures in, in your schools, in your workplaces, in your own churches, then you're going to believe this myth that racism has been eradicated. And then all of a sudden that's, what's going to catch you off guard when a situation with a, a police officer and George Floyd happens. And you see this, this very, passion-filled, vehement reaction, particularly from the black community, because they know nothing has changed. Like, they well, know... You used it, this word in a, in a text message between the three of us earlier, because, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Like, we get walled a little bit into thinking, and, and I got to believe that in some ways, it, like, we don't... And let me finish the whole thing. Like, we don't have lynchings anymore. We don't have... Um, some of the really, really outwardly horrific things happening. And we have Barack Obama as president and all that. So like, you feel like there is progress and I hope that that is actual progress, but you realize that it's not the, the number of steps forward that you thought it was. It was maybe two steps forward, but you're, you're missing the three steps back that, that you're not seeing. And I think what George Floyd did in particular, because this wasn't... Um, this wasn't a case of some of the other the other uh, police brutality murders that we've seen in the past, where it was very and and I, I don't use this term lightly, but very bang bang, very quick. I thought he had a gun, and so I shot kind of thing. It was someone kneeling on someone's neck until they died. It mm -hmm. was a lynching just in front of us. That's right. what we saw. Correct. And yeah. that and that's what like that's what's stoking a lot of this. I be, I believe, and maybe wrongly, rightly, you can confirm or deny you know, whatever, but like, it was so different than, than what we've seen before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it, that to that point, that's what really, I think has ignited the fire, uh, in, in, I mean, both literally and figuratively in many of our cities across this country is it was so blatant and so abrupt that I think it immediately transported not just black Americans, but like all of America back to, you know, lynchings and back to the auction block, you know, where we, where there were human beings like upfront in view, like very real and present trauma and suffering and death. You know what I mean? I think that's really what the trigger is and what's in, Oh, go ahead. Well, and maybe you were going to say this, but the, the thing that, that just strikes me and, you know, Gabe, you kind of talked about kind of the conversation that that's been happening in Ann Arbor, you know, we've been listening nationally and around the world about what's happening but here in minneapolis because it is so close to home and things like that we have a lot of people who are like understanding that this was really bad but then you know 
it gets a little political right away in people who are kind of refusing to understand how bad it was just based off a political view. And like, why can't you just watch this and say, yeah, that was bad without making it about like, you so you don't support the police. So, you know, and and it is bad. It's, it's transporting us back to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, whatever. So I think, you know, and it's, I hate to speak in meme, but, but I saw one that I thought was helpful that it's like, you know, people will say, yeah, it's terrible that a black man was killed, but these people have to stop destroying these stores and these businesses, as opposed to saying, ah, it's a bummer these businesses and stores are being destroyed, but it's horrific that a black man was killed. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So it's like, it's like this crazy, like, and it's so funny, like how you flip that, but like, it demonstrates where someone's priorities are, right. Where it's like, um, like to, to react that way is to show, like it sort of exposes how much you, how much someone might inherently devalue a black person's life. And that's well, actually the whole point behind. Exactly. And, and that's the thing, like we've been desensitized. Okay. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm talking like historically American, like particularly white Americans, we've been desensitized to the death of black bodies. Right. And so a really interesting like social experiment or it's not even an experiment but a, a social observation is when there are white individuals who are murdered okay um like let's just take 9-11 for example okay there are tons of americans not just i mean across ethnic you know uh identity spectrum right like how many videos were circulating on a viral level of a white person being shown to be dying or killed or suffering? Like, you didn't see them, you know, because there's like this like inherent like respect, right? Like, oh, we're not going to like, that's disrespectful to show this person being like murdered by these Mm -hmm. terrorists, right? Because like everyone called it what it was, right? It was a terrorist act that murdered American citizens. Mm -hmm. And what you'll see is if you look back, especially in the last decade, any time or the vast majority of the times that there is a a black victim of of a crime or uh, of police brutality or or something like that, right? That the the image, the video, the picture is circulated widely, and people like you should count the views, and you would see that is complete adverse when it comes to white individuals because there's a sense of like dehumanization, de-dignifying of of a black body suffering or dying versus a white body suffering or dying. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that's just one sort of like really subliminal, uh, really sort of like blind affect of of the race construct that that many of us would never be able to to recognize uh, or to name. And so I think that that's the big issue when that's really caused this stir when someone says like, okay, black lives matter, right? And then all of a sudden, who are the people who are initially responding like, all lives matter? Like it's white America. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Right? Yep. And I, and I, I think that the default for that is because now there's a discomfort that's saying there's a, a non-white individual or or non-white group that is now being elevated to our status of of mattering in significant ways and that's an an underlying threat to our power and to our privilege and to our control over a lot of these systems and so there's been a ton of memes like to your point Gabe that have been going around right like if 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 I say if it's our anniversary 
And my wife is like, hey, I love you. Our relationship matters. And I'm like, all relationships matter. I love Gabe and Tom just as much. She's going to slap you, and you guys are going to get in a fight on your anniversary. If yep. Tom is diagnosed with cancer, and he starts rocking, you know, the Live Strong bandana and bracelet, and I come and rip it off and like, nah, man, like, forget about cancer. Like, all lives matter. You know, like, you're going to be like, wait a second, but you're ignoring my suffering. You're ignoring the source of this pain uh, you know, that exists and is very real and very present, right? And so, like, so, why is it that we pick and choose which ones we want to discriminate against? So I, I have a good friend. It's another example, but I, I, to me, it, it's painted the picture really well, and it's helped me as I've talked to my kids about it, too. A uh, good friend of mine who is, uh, who is black, he painted it this way, and he said, um, when you say all lives matter, think of it like a house, like a block of houses, all houses matter. We don't want any of them to be on fire. We don't want any of them to be washed away by, by a flood or things like that. The statement all lives or all, in this case, all houses matter it is true, but my house is on fire right now. Right. I'm, right. My house is the only one on the block that's on fire. And so the fire department needs to come here. We need to have a response here. And so when you say all houses or all lives matter, yeah, but it's this, it's this lie, these lives right now that we need to be paying attention to, that we need to come up with a better response to. And so you just started getting into this, Josh, and I want to move us into the next kind of phase of this conversation, trying, you know, we've started to understand a little bit about, about the history and some of the things that maybe we're not even understanding, but um, I want to get into a little bit of white privilege and a little bit of white fragility and defensiveness and and kind of wrestle with that just a little bit here as, as kind of the, the typical response when these things happen. Right. And let me just preface this by saying, and I, and I really... I really would challenge all of us, uh, especially all of us white people, to to just own up to it and not try to dismiss it. That, like, we've all been conditioned into this construct that we've already been talking about, okay? And so white people are going to identify and react in certain ways in the same way that people of color will. Because we've all been conditioned by the white, by, by the race construct, we've all we are all drinking the same water, we are all breathing the same air. Okay, so an African American can act in a white supremacist manner. That doesn't make them a white supremacist; they're still a victim. White people can act in white supremacist manners because we are also victimized by the very construct that our forefathers created. All right, and so. I want us to, to know that this isn't just like me spouting off. This isn't just, uh, once again, a, a partisan issue. Like there is very legitimate scientific and sociological research that has gone into whiteness, gone into blackness, gone into Latinxness, gone into Asianness. All right. So this is like a real field of study. So in Gabe's words, I'm going to beat him to the punch. Like there are plenty of books out there. Read a book. Read a book. Read a book. Dude. So let me do a couple proposed responses and, and, and like, and I actually, um, I don't totally agree with them, but I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to where these responses would come from. Okay. So one response would be to say, okay, you talk about black people, like, you know, like it's this whole sort of just, uh, what's the way to put it? Like just universal 
these people are all the same and they're just this group and they've all had the same experience. But again, listen, I know black people that have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they're doing awesome. I know black people that are presidents of universities. We had a black president. Like, so how can you lump, how can you say all black people have experienced injustice? So I'm not really asking that. That's me asking that as someone asking that. Right. And once again, I would go back to the working definition and a very universally understood definition of, of race or racism is power plus prejudice. But they have power now. The, the, Do like they, Barack though? Obama was pre- Barack Obama was president. Right. They had power. Right, yeah. And if Barack Obama, actually when Barack Obama tried to make sweeping executive orders and legislation, how well did that work out for him? Well, how well did it, I mean, so, well, just to play the devil's advocate here, like, how well does it work for any president? Like, you there's have, always backlash. Right, regardless. yes, there's always going to be backlash. But if he were to make some of the claims and some of the assertions and some of the statements that Donald Trump is making right now, there would be a vehemently different reaction. This is the this is the easier one because I think as soon as we start talking about Barack Obama, it really complicates things because he was president of the United States. Like a large group of people voted him in, right. and he did have ultimate power over the globe. Let let it just it is right. Mm-hmm. The better example is two years ago when LeBron James made some fairly benign comments about social injustice and and black lives matter things like that laura ingraham on her fox news show told him to shut up and go dribble a basketball okay and that became a big thing and she lost a bunch of sponsors rightfully so um a week and a half ago drew Brees made some fairly insensitive remarks and made made uh his comments more about the flag when it that's what what it wasn't about it doesn't matter Laura Ingraham, after a bunch of people pounced on Drew Brees, she said, whoa, 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 hold on. He should have his right to say what he believes and, you know, free speech and this and this and this. And someone rightfully pointed out, well, wait a second. Both of them are world champions in their respective sports. Both of them have set records. Both of them are worldwide recognized you know, figures, um, they're basically equal in terms of that. What could be the difference? Why would Laura Ingraham say to one, go dribble a basketball, and one say, no, 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 free speech, he can say what he wants. What could possibly be the difference? And there it is. It's right there. It's so much easier to see. So the struggle is, though, just to, like, poke a hole in that, is, like, that, again, turns this into a partisan thing, right? Like, it's, like, it wasn't, like, plenty of people backed LeBron James when Laura Ingraham was, a turd. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, she lost sponsors, da da da. So yeah. like it wasn't like he didn't have a dog in the fight. And it isn't like Drew Brees hasn't been just raked through the coals over this. Yep. So so I, I I think it's like it ends up just then becoming a partisan thing. So Ibram Kendi in his book How to Be an Anti Racist, which everyone and their mom is buying right now, sets up basically a, a spectrum of categories, right? And on the one end you have segregationists. Those For those who would say that basically social Darwinism is playing out perfectly fine, and if whites are advantaged and blacks and people of color are disadvantaged, that's just society. That's just how the world is, okay? And so that's a perfectly fine system, and it's working for everybody. We should keep things as they are. On the opposite end of that spectrum, you would have the anti-racist, 
who would say, no, there are systems, policies, and interpersonal prejudice that are still at play, and they need to be dismantled and eliminated so that, to the original quote from the Bible, that there aren't these inequities or injustices that exist destroying the fabric of God's shalom and his creation, right? Right there in the middle uh, is what Kendi and, and many others would identify uh, as assimilationists, okay? So those are going to be people who assimilate into the dominant culture, into the dominant white culture, in order for survival, in order to uh, get ahead, in order to find success, in order to not die, all right? And so um, a lot of what I've seen, which is just blasphemy, in my opinion, are like you've got people who are quoting and tokenizing a single black voice that say is like, no, George Floyd deserved to die, right? And I've seen this, like you could look them up. That First, it's absurd and it's, and it's unfactual. And two, you can't leverage a single black voice and say then they all of a sudden speak for all of, of black America, all of every single African-American in this country, every single African-American experience, right? And yet what it highlights is that person or that individual has chosen to assimilate into the dominant culture in order to survive, in order to gain a foothold, in order to maybe get a conventional mortgage. I mean, shoot, in order to keep their job. Uh, and and my peer and someone I've learned a lot from, uh, who's also a member of our church, and we, we run uh, anti-racist trainings together, Sarah Berestecki, she is a light-skinned Latina. She's a third-generation Mexican-American. And she said that as a light-skinned Latina, she assimilated quite often. So she would try to be more white in order to avoid problems at school. She would try to act more white because her parents were trying to dissociate her from even speaking Spanish at the house because we all know that if you speak Spanish in the country, you're labeled as an illegal immigrant, that you're lazy, that, you know, like the, the best you can do is be a housemaid. You know what I'm saying? For the most part. And so those categories are really helpful because what we see is that, like, on the one end, you've got the segregation is like, yeah, whites are better, okay? The assimilation is going to be like, oh, yeah, colored, God doesn't see color. Everyone's cool. Like, all lives matter. The anti-racist is going to say, no, there are still fundamental issues within the very fabric of our society that continue to negatively and adversely affect people of color, especially black Americans, which result then in the opportunities for people like George Floyd to be murdered at the hands of law enforcement, where that shouldn't happen from just a very objective, you know, judicial point of view. Right. There's no due process. It's bad. Precisely. Precisely. So let let's bring it back because we're starting to get it. You're, you're talking about like like grouping people into like the way we see the world and things like that. I want to loop us back to where we, I wanted to get to a little bit here of of white people response as far as white privilege, white fragility, and defensiveness. Can you can you quickly outline what that is? because it'll feed into our next kind of line of, of discussion. Yeah, to keep it very brief and very simple, white supremacy, okay, and what I mean by that is not burning crosses and, and lynching black folks, okay? White supremacy in the very technical sense of the supremacy of whiteness, all right, is a system that is dedicated to and is and is perpetuated by bringing comfort to white individuals, both personally and collectively. And so when something confronts that level of comfort, when something threatens to undermine that comfort, 
then it immediately causes white people like myself, like both of you, to act out in a number of ways, to get defensive and to say, well, police have killed white people too, but at a crazy disproportionate level comparatively to black and brown bodies, all right? Uh, for us then to to be very fragile, which is like, well, I don't know what to do. You show me, you teach me. Uh, like, what am I supposed to do? I'm just going to give up and quit on this because it's too hard, right? Because that's how it is in, in every aspect of life, right? If you, Gabe, you wanted to be a CrossFit, you know, champion, and uh, eventually it probably reached a point where you realized, hey, unless I put 12 hours a day, seven days a week, I'm not going to be the CrossFit champion. So it started to undermine your comfort level of wanting to drink uh, a pouch it, daiquiri. But good try. I did conquer it, and I won, and I beat Matthew Frazier in the CrossFit Games. No one even knows who you're talking about. Uh, some people do, and uh, <laughs> and it's not true. But, no, I went to grad school, and so I couldn't work out anymore, and now I'm fat. All my problems are from grad school. Um, Go on. You know what? I blame the University of Michigan for pretty much everything in life in any way, so. Fair enough. Nothing Although, fits this discussion more of, like, your your problems of, like, I had to go to grad school, so I had to stop doing CrossFit, paying people to help me do CrossFit again. I, I had to go to grad school for the second time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got, like, white defensiveness, okay, which, yeah. is, which is, like, I'm just going to just speak out against everything that's happening because it's it, it seems and feels at a subconscious level a threat to my very well-being even though it's not okay mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then you have white fragility which is like woe is me the world is in chaos i just simply don't know what to do so forget it i'm just going to kind of like cover my ears close my eyes and hope it goes away okay and then you also have yeah. on the other end of the spectrum then you've got this sort of like pseudo abolitionist approach particularly from well-meaning white people which is like all of a sudden something like this happens we're you know you've got those young what were you joking about gabe like the 24 yeah, year old like college dude every like white girl in her like mid-20s to early 30s in my my facebook feed right now is like in some sort of competition for who is the most woke like, right it, it's and I realize that sounds sexist. I'm just telling you, that's what I see on my feed constantly right now. Exactly. And so let me actually quote um, a historian, a biblical historian and theologian, uh, who actually, I think, really hits this kind of nail on the head for that specific situation. Um, and this is what uh, he says. It's actually a commentary, I believe, on the book of Proverbs, but it's Bruce Waltke. And he says this. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. And so my common critique of that specific individual and of this well-meaning white response is like, justice matters, like we're going to take these systems down. Okay, what happens though when it threatens the advantage that you hold or are you willing to intentionally disadvantage yourself in order then to elevate or to advantage the voices, the experiences, the the realities of your neighbor? And in this situation, we're talking oh. about black Americans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I want to talk about that that in specific. So um, after this thing of, of George, George Floyd, you know, you watch the video, it's horrific, and you have all these people standing around and I can't imagine what it would have been like to be standing in that crowd. 
okay? In the most well-meaning, if you are the most well-meaning person there, you're in this horrible catch-22 of, I want to disadvantage myself and do something to save this man's life, okay? And what that would mean would be to assault a police officer. That's really the only thing that you could have done, right, in that situation to save George Floyd's life. And I actually called our police department. I said, if I'm in that situation ever, what do I do? Because I know if I assault a police officer, I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to, it, it, it will impact my family financially. I could lose my job, you know, all these things, jail time, I be away from my family, things like that. But I can't just stand there and watch someone, somebody die. And it's this horrible catch-22. And your response to me, Josh, when we were talking about this was like, but that's what it might take for somebody to disadvantage themselves to get to that situation. And then you pointed out too, and this gets to white privilege and, and, and things like that of like, well, what would have really happened though is because it would have been caught on camera, um, there would have been lawyers lined up to, to defend me, high price lawyers, heavy hitter lawyers. Um, you know, I would have had Al Sharpton and, and uh, you, you know, and whatnot slapping me on the back. I would have been on Jimmy Kimmel for, you know, doing what's best, you know, in this kind of thing because I'm white. But if a black person had done that, they'd still be in jail. Right. right? And actually, yeah. And to your point, so like uh, Jenny and I tuned into a webinar or like a, a Zoom rally or whatever they called it last week, um, and it was hosted by authors and writers uh, uh, for children's books. Um, they were they were all people of color. All I mean, actually, I think it wasn't just black. They had some Latinx people in there as well. And this little girl who's like, well, maybe she wasn't the one. No, it was someone else who told this story right about one of the demonstrations where you had the police like riot line lined up right and a young black boy stood in front of the line out of protest and then you had a young white woman a young white girl see that and then step in front of the young black boy because she knew that because of her privilege that cop was not going to shoot her assault her right or or do anything terribly drastic right yep. okay so then what was the reaction? What was the response? It was immediately praise of that young woman. You put your privilege on the line. You are the best. Let's glorify your actions, right? Which on the one hand were, were a good thing, okay? Mm -hmm. right. But more consequentially, like then who took the – or who was then centered in that conversation? No. It was this white savior, so to well, speak. And it's actually, it's funny, like this actually speaks to like, you know, morality in general, right? Where it's like, and this actually speaks to the importance of grace, where it's like, the, the reason why as Christians, we believe so firmly in grace and why that shapes our morals and shapes how we live and shapes everything we do is because without it, morals in themselves are inherently self-serving, right? Correct. So like, if, if I follow the rules, if I do the right things in order to earn God's approval or in order to earn humanity's approval, my morals are actually not good. They're selfish. I'm doing them for the sake of, of what I receive from them. Now, this little girl, I can't imagine she was thinking this much in a complex moral system, but that's actually why I think as Christians, we have a unique opportunity in this, in the midst of this, where we, 
it doesn't actually have to be about us. Like we right. can actually make it not about us. Like we're free for it to not be about us. We're, we're free to live in the freedom of grace. But, but, but on the other hand, it, it is about us. I mean, we're talking about our response and what we, what we need to learn, what we need to understand and right. what our part is in the, in this whole situation. Yes. Well, course, so but, to, to Gabe's point, uh, not to quote another uh, biblical commentarian, but Derek Kidner in his commentary on the Psalms uh, quotes Psalm 41 verse 1, which says, blessed is the person who considers the poor. And then he goes on to in, uh, to comment that the Hebrew word translated as considers means to give sustained attention to a subject and then to act wisely and successfully with regard to it. God does not want us to merely give the poor perfunctory help, but to ponder long and hard about how to improve their situation. So mm -hmm. God does not want us to jump in front of the black body in the middle of a demonstration immediately following the, the murder of a black man by a police officer, right? Mm -hmm. God wants us to ponder long and hard the entire situation of our neighbors, those who are oppressed, those who continue to suffer in our midst, right? And so this is really the issue at hand. How do we do that successfully, like he highlights in that comment on Psalm 41? And the starting point for us as white individuals is to, one, actually be educated about the real history, not the stuff we were taught in school, which was whitewashed quite literally, but to be educated about where we came from as a country, where we stand, those policies like redlining that perhaps we weren't aware of before, right? And then to dismantle them within ourselves so that that way I'm no longer categorizing the other in a dehumanizing way or in a vilified way. And then to say, where can I engage in the socio-political arena for the sake and on behalf of my neighbor to dismantle those things that literally don't consider them, right? But instead are able to advantage them. And in doing so, I am actually loving my neighbor as I love myself, because I like the privilege I have. Let's just be honest. I don't have to fear the police. I know I can get a conventional home loan, right? Like, I know that I'm probably going to end up with some type of inheritance from my parents, whether it's a little bit or a lot. Like, I'm going to have generational wealth, whether I like it, want it or not. Mm -hmm. And I would, I should, as a Christian, I should want the same thing for my neighbors. Mm-hmm. I should not want to be privileged or elevated above them. So what are those things in the world around us that we have to like not just call out but then act upon or act against in order so that our neighbors are able to share in the same kind of thing that we Die do? to. Right, right. Yeah. So, so so, what are the – like I'd love for you to give us some examples because from, from the very little to the, you know, to the bigger, grander gesture kind of thing, like what – what are some things that, that, that we can be doing? So yeah, I mean, you start, you started with, with, with education, read a book, right? Um, read more than one book, you know, have conversations, read the news, like get into it, understand it. Right. Right. Yes. So self-educating is important. All right. Uh, building meaningful relationships with non-white people in your life is important not to the end so that they can teach you about your own history not to the end so that they can console you when you're like all of a sudden waking up 
to this, okay? Uh, not to protect you or to pat you on the back and say, great job, you're doing well, okay? But just because they're another human being. And just like you would, you know, develop a relationship with someone else just because you want to, like do that, right? But then there are there are ways that you can begin to do this uh, on very, like, so the things we talk about with our kids is, you know, like, and I was there in high school, like, I mean, shoot, how many times have we just, like, joked around either in mixed company ethnically or just in, in common company, like, with ra with racist jokes, you know what I mean? I mean, we've talked about this before. Three years, five years, ten years ago, there were things that we said, like, in high school and college that are now so out of line that we would never think to say them again. So when those things arise in our workplaces with our friends or with our family, we actually have to then disadvantage our comfort and our comfort levels and call them out and say, no, that's inappropriate, that's unacceptable, right? So those are like the interpersonal ways. On the broader systemic ways, I guarantee you that no matter where you live, no matter what part of America you exist in, there are going to be local organizations, entities, and coalitions who are actively working to undermine and dismantle some of these busted systems that exist. Find them and see if you can work with them. Because in doing so, you're going to realize very, very quickly that, that it's not the sexiest work, but it is quite fulfilling. Because as we've already said throughout this entire episode, or which after editing will probably be like 12 episodes, is that it fills you up to be about the work of God's kingdom. In the same way that being generous and being hospitable is, pursuing justice and God's a renewal of God's shalom is like something that the Holy Spirit, I think, rewards, not just in an eternal sense, but in a self-sustaining sense. So can I ask one thing about that? And this like goes to a conversation you and I were having earlier and that I'm having with a person at my church right now. Um is like, man, it, it, it actually gets tricky, I feel like, at a policy level. Um, and, and this is like maybe speaking as an organization, but, but even as an individual Christian to say like, hey, I want to be a part of this coalition. I want to be a part of this group that's doing X, Y, and Z. But man, I don't sign off on everything. Like, I'm like, I'm cool with changing this. I'm cool with changing this. I'm cool with changing this. But like, I rub up against this. Like, do you have any thoughts on how we approach that well? I think we need to to broaden the lenses through which we interpret to your earlier comment, like the moral ethic that we're really buying into, right? Um, for example, we as the 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 general sentiment, I would say, and Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm speaking from a, a clerical position here. The general sentiment of the the layperson in the LCMS is going to say, or is going to be pro life. Yeah, right. That I, think, I mean, it's, I think it still lies a little along rural and urban lines, but yes, I think I would say yeah, part. like. I would be willing to bet probably three quarters of LCMS yeah. laity is going to be pro-life. Okay. Yep. Um, and so they're going to engage in sociopolitical action to that end. Right. Um, and yet there are some crazy people 
who do some really abhorrent, you know, like policy advocacy and congregational action that would seem to undermine that or to contradict it, right? Like you can get some really hardcore pro hard hardcore pro lifers who are also like, let's get back to the Confederacy kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So no, then do we there. just yeah. abandon all pro-life issues? No, I don't think so. Not. Right. So this was, I mean, it, it already has, and it is bound to get political eventually here, but like there, there's a, there's a le there's a lesser version of that, that, that just drives me up the wall when it comes to the pro-life kind of thing. And, and I think it goes into this conversation because when you said broad the lens, that really made a lot of sense to me because for those who are typically pro-life, they are then typically Republican, right? I'm not wrong on that. Typically, yes. Typically, typically sure. Typically, yep. yes, right? Yep. And what drives me nuts is when they are so hardcore pro-life, but then every person that they vote for and every law that they vote for, there, there's always these things because I, I come from the food banking world where Republicans and people were just shutting down any legislation that would expand food stamps or any kind of community welfare kind of things that would help people. So it basically means, well, you're pro-life until they're born and then you don't give a shit. Well, that's actually, what it turns, that's right. what it turns out to be. No, you, and so what you're asking us, Josh, is to broaden, broaden the scope. And this is what I ask of everybody right now. is like, look, just because I say that I think these four officers should go and rot in jail forever does not mean that I hate all police. Broaden your lens here a little bit and be okay with saying I agree with some parts of the party that I belong to or the coalition that I belong to, but I'm not okay with some of the things that we belong to. Right. And actually, let me even broaden this further. Uh, and this might be new to you guys. It, it, I would guess it's probably going to be very new information to many of our listeners, uh, particularly within the scope of the pro-life uh, conversation. Maternal death rates of black women are higher than any other demographic. So yeah. we're not talking about women who are going to get abortions. We're talking about mothers who are going to hospitals to have a baby. And they are receiving subpar care or different care than white mothers. And therefore, it results in a higher death rate, a higher maternal death rate of black women. And that's just a, a healthcare fact. Okay. Where is that in the conversation ever? Nowhere, right? And so we, we become so hyper-focused on this one particular enemy, Planned Parenthood, right? And yet we're, it's, it's almost like when Jesus is like, hey, you tithe your dill and your cumin and your mint to the Pharisees, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Like we're going after Planned Parenthood. We're tithing our dill and our cumin and our mint, but we're sort of neglecting a lot of other things that are tangential to it and necessarily part of the conversation. And so that's where I want us to get to, right, is where, yes, pro-life is an important thing. I am a firm believer that every human being is made in the image of God from infancy until the oldest person alive, okay? But that has to extend beyond the fetus. It's got to go to the body of George Floyd. It's got to go to the body of Breonna Taylor, right? It's got to go to the bodies of all these individuals. And until we're at the point, and I'm only speaking within our tribe, until we get to the point where we're willing to broaden the scope and expand the lens of pro-life or anything else, 
then we're simply not doing enough and we're not doing what we should be doing in terms of uh, advocating for our neighbors or uh, pursuing this this endeavor to dismantle these systems that oppress us all. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that makes sense. I think, you know, part of it, and this is like, I, this could be episode five, six, seven, and eight. Part of it, it, it does end up coming back to this like weird partisanship we find ourselves in as a country. And, and I don't just mean in recent years. I mean, I mean, like, I don't mean in recent years, like in the last four years. I mean, in recent years, in like, like if you go back to the the quote unquote culture wars of like the 80s where like freaking pat robertson was running for the republican party whatever and like these sort of bizarre storylines where there was a, a marriage between conservatism and christianity um is it's deeply problematic and and i think in ways that that we don't even realize right now and that's not to say like listen we i know we have conservative many conservative listeners and that's fine be conservative and be a christian like whatever we can talk about this uh you know but like there's just this like thing in our head where it's like it, we can't talk about any other issue. We can't be aware of any other thing or anything else holistically or be engaged politically on any other issue, but this one. And admittedly, abortion is a very big deal, but like, sure. to your point, Josh, if we fail to see the interconnectedness of all of this, um, we're not being faithful. Right. And I think it even goes back. I mean, forget Pat Robertson, this goes back and, and I've been, not just when it comes to to race or racism, like American denominationalism or like American Christianity. And what I mean by that is a a unique strain of of Christian history and thought and 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 you know denominationalism that is rooted in individualism to me is what is highly problematic mm -hmm. because what it does yeah. is that then it it is self centers. And it focuses on the individual versus on the collective. And that is very unique in a negative way if you look at the vast history of God's people stemming all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know what I'm saying? And like even through the New Testament, there was always this much more communal like aspect and focus. And it wasn't until this sort of like frontier revivalism, uh, you know, manifest destiny, American, you know, like individualistic sort of like tendencies that the church then appropriated. And I think that's what really shoots us in the foot is we mm -hmm. we're unable to collectively identify when we need to. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. 110, 110. Gents, we got to wrap up. I mean, even if we do this as two, three episodes, we're going long. Um, so friends, we, uh, have been graced to hear from our good friend, Josh Woodrow, hear about his work. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, are you deeply offended? Are you not deeply offended? Uh, whatever else, uh, but, uh, hope to hear from you, share your thoughts with us. We'd love to connect. Yeah, seriously. Hit us up 612-208-6258. And more importantly, if you are looking for meaningful resources, like there are so many floating around. And I joked with my wife yesterday that a lot of these tools can actually be dangerous if you don't know how to use them. 
Like, if I just told Gabe, here's a circuit breaker and some wire, go install 12 new receptacles into your house, he'll probably electrocute himself, all right? And I don't want you to die, Gabe. So, if you want to get pointed to some good resources that are accessible uh, and that won't cause unnecessary harm, hit us up, and I would be happy to point you in the right direction. And I, and I think, I, you know... I from someone who hasn't been doing this work for, for what did you say, Josh, six, seven years or something like whatnot, that, you know, that, and we keep hearing it in the news and, th- and we've talked about it here tonight, that it's a really uncomfortable space and that's okay. And you're gonna, when you, when you read these things, you can, you'll, you'll get defensive about it. And that's, that, that's a, to me, it's a logical like reaction. Like if it, if you're not, then great. But like, it's going to happen, but you got to work through that and, and continue to, to work, you know, to, to read more, to have more conversations and get further down the line. You know, I've been having conversations with the three of us have been having these conversations for a number of years now. And I'd like to think that we're, we're, we're moving down the line, but still lots of things that I find problematic or that I don't even, I'm not even aware of myself. And so like, it takes time, like we're not going to solve this overnight. Right. And I think to your point, Tom, and this is something that maybe might, it might be a good place to end on. It's how Sarah and I end our trainings. It's something we learned in the community organizing world. Uh, and that is that tension provides room for growth. It's like a rubber band, right? Like, sure, you can pull it too far and you can get snapped and it's going to hurt, but at least it's going to get your attention. Other than that, rubber bands expand. And tension allows you to expand your frame of reference. It allows you to expand positions that you normally wouldn't explore, but it's all to the end of growing and of being stretched. And so that's really, I think, if I can speak for all of us, particularly myself, like, you're right. It's not going to be an overnight fix, nor is that what you should desire. But what you should look for is ways that you can be stretched, uh, both historically, politically, sociologically, anthropologically, perhaps even interpersonally. And I think that's where we need to go from here. Physiologically, just get a good stretch. Yeah, there you go. Just stretch it out. You know what? Let's do some like racist yoga. That's all we need to do. Or anti-racist yoga. Right, right. Yes. Anyway, we're really grateful for you guys for hanging in there. Chances are you'll be listening to two parts of this long episode unless I get lazy and only edit one. But in the meantime, seriously, hit us up. 612-208-6258. Daiquiri pouches, unnamed Tom cocktails, Zima's, and breaking down so many things. Hot dish. Breaking down hot dish. All right, friends. We're out. PGP loves you.